Father, thank you for gathering us together on this beautiful fall morning. These constant reminders in your creation of your kindness toward us and the changing of the seasons reminding us that you never change, Lord, but are continually our steadfast, faithful Savior. Even when we are faithless, still you are there for us. Lord, uh, encourage us, strengthen us from your word in uh, the letter of Hebrews. We pray that you give us a deeper appreciation for who your son is and why, why he had to come and why he became man on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. So uh, I want to start with this. Did any of you guys, uh, if you don't mind sharing, were any of you guys ever become a blood brother when you were a kid? Did any of you guys ever do this? Okay. A few of you guys did. What was the purpose of becoming a blood brother? George, what, who was it with? It was Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts. Oh, okay. Boy Scouts. And it was like, well, what did it express by doing that? Uh, I'm going to be forever your friend. Okay. I'm going to be forever your friend. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Well, I don't know. Oh, so it's not quite that, but <laughs> yeah. We'd like to be on the same baseball team. Okay. Oh, <laughs> we'll be on the same baseball team. Yeah, Bob, what would you... Well, we saw a movie where the first time we ever saw, you know, was with Native Americans. And okay, yeah. It looked so cool. So yes. My best friend and I did it, but we cut thumbs because we didn't want to slit our wrists. Well, good. Yeah. <laughs> the old cutting of thumbs. Yeah, Matt, did you say you did it too? Yeah, mine was more Grizzly Adams influenced. Oh, really? <laughs> now, but I was wondering, what, what is the girl equivalent of Blood Brothers? So, you know, boys will do this from time to time. They'll cut themselves, you know, tough kind of thing. Is there a girl equivalent, ladies? Is there? Yeah, Ruta? We did it. There were three of us. Oh, okay. What did you call it? I don't what? remember. It was Map, Sap, and Arby. That was our initials. Map, Sap, and Arby? Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. Blood Sisters. Blood Sisters. Well, okay. It just doesn't Blood. have the same Soul alliteration. Sister. Soul Sister. There you go. Soul, Soul Sister. Okay. And, yeah. Priscilla will tell you the story. She's the baby of six sisters. Yeah. And whenever two of them paired up, they put a dot between their big toe and the next toe. Oh, interesting. With an ink pen, and that meant they were dot girls. They were dot girls. <laughs> All right. There you go. Well, I bring this up because we're going to see in this passage how Jesus is our blood brother, so to speak, and why he does it, why he needs to be, why, in fact, he has to become man for us. We won't answer that question exhaustively, perhaps, but we're going to get pretty deep into it. And some commentators say that really this section of Hebrews is the, the fullest answer to this question, why did God become man? So big question. We're going to unpack that as part of what we're looking at today. So go to Hebrews chapter 2. And if uh, you don't got a Bible, you need one. We've got some more over here on the, the shelf as well. We're going to pick up with verse 10. Let me read verses 10 through 13 to get us going. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. We'll pause there. To start with, now I've mentioned how um, Hebrews probably started as a sermon rather than as a, a traditional letter. And so it's just 
filled with all these rhetorical moves, as preachers are wont to do. And it's this, the logic just kind of unfolds over and over again. And so, especially when we're picking things up in the middle of a, of a chapter, of a section, uh, it's important and helpful to look back a little bit, because notice verse 10 starts with, for it was fitting. Like, well, what's the, the for referring to? To look back to verse 9 which tells us that we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay, this raises the question then. Why did he have to do that? Why did he have to taste death for everyone? Not to mention, how did he do that? And that's where it's going to pick up then here in verse 10 and following. And it starts with this Arresting phrase, it was fitting. It was fitting. So number one on your handout, under where it says pioneering salvation, the suffering of the son befits the character of the father. When you think about the reasons that Jesus would become man and what happens with that, fitting is not necessarily the first word that would come to your mind, is it? You think uh, that it's fitting that Jesus would do this? Perhaps with a thoroughly Christian imagination, it might be on your radar, but even then it probably wouldn't be the first word. But certainly, certainly in our Lord's own day, at the time when this sermon was preached, the notion that it was fitting that God would so reveal himself to us would be utterly scandalous. And we saw this reaction throughout the Gospels and the way that people reacted and responded to Jesus. It happened in Paul's own ministry. He talked about what a scandal of the cross was. In what sense could it be fitting that the Son of God would suffer and die. How does that fit? And it's fitting then that already at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus goes to be baptized, you remember this moment. Take a look at, at uh, John the Baptist's response. You've got it here, Matthew 3. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. What else could he do? (laughs) It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That same word group uh, is used here in Matthew 3 that's used in Hebrews. So I ask you, in what sense is it fitting that Jesus would go, that he would go to be baptized, that he would align himself there in the water with all those other sinners? In what sense would it be fitting that he would come to suffer? How how is that befitting of our Lord? What what thoughts do you have? What jumps in your head? Yeah, ma'am. He was appointed by God. Okay, he was appointed by God. And so it's fitting in the sense that he's he's doing his duty. He's he's following with the, the plans of the Father. Good. Other thoughts? Yeah, Esther. Well, he has to go through everything that we as human beings went over because yes. God laid him on him, the iniquity of us all. Very good. So, And this is, Hebrews is really going to go there. So Esther said it's fitting because Jesus had to go through everything that we go through in order for it to be laid on his own shoulders. Good. Anything else? Ways that it's, it's fitting. Yeah, Bob. It's um, something maybe we don't always think about, but he was already destined to be crucified before the Lord started creation. Yeah, that's right. From so, He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's right. So already the Lord knew the price tag of making creation. Yes. So it just 
It's who he is. It's who he is. And this is the key point because we need to recognize that when Jesus not only becomes man but suffers, he's disclosing to us our Father's heart. If you want to know God's heart toward you and me, you need to look at Jesus and in particular need to look at the cross because through his suffering and death and resurrection, he discloses to us, reveals to us the true nature of the Father's heart. And what does that have? It's a heart of love, of sacrificial love, of pouring himself out for our sake in order to make us his children. When we look there, that's what we see. I've called attention, I think, before to Philippians chapter 2. I mean, I know we've looked at that text recently. But in particular, there's a phrase in there, Philippians 2. It says that Jesus, the Son of God, uh, and many translations will say, even though he was in the form of God, emptied himself and became nothing. Even though, as though this is an adversative, it's a contrast. Yes, we all know this is not the sort of thing that gods do. And I think there's truth to that. But it could otherwise be translated, and stay with me here, it could otherwise be translated, Jesus, because he was in the form of God, did not consider equality a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself. Now, what's the difference there? The difference is saying, Jesus did this not in spite of his godness. He, he emptied himself, became a servant, and suffered not in spite of his godness, but precisely because he is God. Because this is what God does. This is what God looks like. And this completely explodes every vision of God in the ancient world and still to this day. Where people have this idea that God is the one who just wants to come along and flick people off like fleas, right? This is what he does. thought I was going to say something else when I used the phrase flicking people off. Sorry, that was <laughs> unfortunate. But uh, is this what God is like? No, he is a God who comes to give himself for us, to pour himself out for us, to suffer for us. This is who Jesus is. I love this passage from uh, commentator Tom Long. He says, only in the light of the gospel narrative, only in the context of the story of the incarnation, does the unthinkable become the necessary, the unimaginable become that which is fitting, the incongruous become the indispensable, and the foolishness of the incarnate Son, crucified, dead, and buried, become the very wisdom of God. Now, looking through the lens of the cross, our logic, our reason, has been reformed, recalibrated in a cruciform way, right? I, we just, we think differently. We look at the world differently because we see it through Jesus. Right, reflections about that or questions, comments about that? This is so key at the, the heart of who we are, especially as, as Lutheran Christians. Yeah, Hans? Well, this is just odd. When you set the <coughs> rules, I'm assuming God sets all the rules, or were the rules already sure. set prior? Prior, prior to God? I mean, prior to God. No, it's, it's like, you know, if you were going to say, well, to pay with price, well, I could uh, throw out a thousand shekels instead of gotcha, yes. getting, getting, you know, right. sacrificing yourself. Right. Uh, is, you know, it's like, Yes, so there's this deeper mystery. Like, presumably, the God of all creation can, as you say, set the rules, set the ground rules for how's it going to be, whether a sacrifice, whether blood is going to need to be shed to reconcile. Couldn't there be another way that he, he could have done it? And now we're getting into deep mysteries, right? Questions that we aren't able to give answers to. But I do think that the short answer is, as Bob alluded to, only through 
Only through sacrifice are we able to see the fullness of the Father's heart toward us. Greater love hath no man. Greater love hath no man than this. They lay down his life for his friends. And so we're able to see through that refraction now what does God's heart really look like toward us. Could he have done it another way? Could, presumably so, yes. But in this way, it, this is why there's this uh, line in the Easter Vigil. It says, O Felix Culpa, O happy fault of Adam that won for us so great a redeemer. See? I mean, it's a completely backwards way of thinking. You think, wait a second, how could it be a, a happy fault? How could there be anything good about sin? All that has come into the world, and all of that's still true. But because of that, now we're able to see our Savior in all of his glory and all of his, his um, self-giving love for us. But the scripture goes on, Hebrews goes on, and it has more to say about Jesus. Uh, imagine that. Um, it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Ooh, there's a lot going on here. Okay. Makes the founder of his salvation perfect through, of their salvation perfect through suffering. First of all, that word founder is this really freighted Greek word. I put it on there for you. It's the word archegon. Archegon. And uh, it's going to turn up later in Hebrews 12. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, is how it's often translated. Um, but the word brings together two ideas. Arche, um, like archaic, means from the beginning. It's old, okay? Uh, we use that prefix in many English words. Arche means the beginning or the first thing. And it's connected with ago, to lead. So the archegon is the guy who leads at the beginning. He's the pioneer. He's the trailblazer, if you will. The one who goes out in front and prepares the way for those who come behind him, right? He's the one who, who goes out in front of us. I think a pioneer is a good a good translation for this. But it really captures these two ideas that Jesus is both the originator of salvation, the one who founded it, right? But he's also the captain. He's the one who, he didn't just found salvation, so to speak, and say, all right, now go get them, guys. But he's also the captain. He's the one who goes before us and who goes with us and continues to, to lead us into the spiritual battle, leading beside us, behind us, before us, right? Yeah, man. The he in verse 10, that, is that rightly understood as God the Father? Yes, yep. So um, that the Father is the one who had been bringing many sons to glory, makes the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Ooh, but then we've got to get into this phrase. Makes him perfect through suffering. <laughs> Raises the question, well, isn't Jesus perfect already? He's the Son of God. How could he not be perfect? And in what sense does he become perfect through suffering? Well, do I have a separate? Um, okay, I said the pioneer of our salvation endured ordination by fire. Now, why do I, I put it that way? So this is where that connection with the Old Testament, especially Leviticus, is so important. Because that word perfected there is used throughout the book of Leviticus and in Exodus. When it talks about the priesthood, it uses the same Greek word. It's, um, the root is telos, which means completion or fulfillment, but in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which I often refer to, in the Septuagint, it used the same word to translate the Hebrew word for ordination, the Hebrew phrase, actually. Hebrew is a very concrete language. I always use the, the example when it wants to say that somebody got angry. It says that you're, you're off rod, which means your nose got hot, okay? You're angered. Your nose gets hot. 
And similarly, for ordination in Hebrew, it says literally, his hands were filled up. Because it would be the filling of hands, the laying on of hands, and so forth. Well, the Greek translation took that literally and used that filling up idea and translated it with this idea of completion or perfection. So what does this mean? It means that when he talks about here that he was perfected, it's not talking about what we might think of like a moral or ethical imperfection that Jesus had and now he's perfect. It's alluding to the fact that now that through his suffering, Christ becomes ordained, so to speak, as our great high priest. And that's the theme that the preacher in Hebrews is going to pick up and really run with after our section here. We're going to talk about it a little bit more here shortly. But this is the idea, that he is perfected, that he is ordained through his suffering. And so I use this phrase, sometimes you hear the phrase, oh, you went through a baptism by fire. And what's that mean? If you go through a baptism by fire, what, what are we expressing with that phrase? What's the idea there? You've been through some very heavy trials. You've been through some very heavy trials, that's right, and survived. Yeah. And through that, you have some new awareness or understanding or what have you. Jesus goes through a kind of ordination by fire as now is ordained as the great high priest over all creation through his suffering and death. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, that all creation is key because the ordination of Aaron and company is for that congregation. Yeah, yes. This suffering makes him high priest over yes. all human beings who ever were conceived in the womb. Yes, that's right. So now it's, he's not just high priest over, over the Jews, but now he is high priest, as it were, over all creation. Jew, Gentile, Moabite, <laughs> that all of them uh, fall under the, the headship and the priestly intercession of Christ Jesus. Um, oh, and I, I gave a, a reference there with, with this. Leviticus 8.33 um, is one example of this uh, ordination connection to completion. You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, teleosis, for it will take seven days to ordain you, teleosis. Uh, so you have that felicitous connection there. So this is who Jesus is. We've, all, we've already given several images. He's mixing his metaphors a little bit, but that's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. As he, we've got Jesus as the captain, as the hero. We've got Jesus as the priest, indeed the high priest, over all creation. We're seeing these different images of him, and he's got still more images left to go. All right, verse 11, he goes on. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He who sanctifies. To folks who were formed by Old Testament scriptures, that would only mean one thing. Who, who is he who sanctifies? It's the Lord. It's God, God the Father is the one who sanctifies. Again, from Leviticus 20, verse 8. God says, keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, okay? So he who sanctifies you and those who are sanctified. I should pause there and say, what do we mean by sanctification? Here, there's your $5 theological word, right? Made holy? To be made holy, yeah? To, I mean, sometimes we say it, to be set apart for a purpose, but from that root word, it's really that growth in holiness. It's being conformed more and more to the likeness of our Lord Jesus. And the question becomes, well, who does that? Who, who's responsible for your sanctification, for your growth and holiness? Is God responsible, or are you responsible? Yes. And, yes, thank you, Carla. Yep. I've been teaching the confirmation students already. If I say, if I say both, 
the answer is yes, right? Um, and this, is, this contrasts with justification. When we talk about justification, our being made righteous and declared righteous in God's sight, that is 100% wholly God's work. It's, it, that's simply it. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I'm empty-handed, he gives me everything. It's God's one-way love and claiming us through justification. Okay? Sanctification is this ongoing life of faith, and in that sense, it's, both, it's a cooperative endeavor. It is both God is the one who sanctifies you, and I work together with his, with his Holy Spirit. Now, it might not sound very Lutheran to you. You're like, wait a second. I thought that I just was supposed to sit in a dark room and twiddle my thumbs and wait for God to make me holy. You can do that. Don't recommend it. Instead, God says, now you are my child. Now go out and as though, Romans 12, therefore, in view of God's mercies, uh, we are being transformed. It says, offer your lives, your bodies as living sacrifices, right? It's a sanctification kind of talk. It's also the talk of that kind of logic that we have through the cross, in view of God's mercies. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Actually, go there. This is probably the best example of it. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Okay, so notice the both and that's going on here. Both God's work and our work. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 12. Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see that both and there? On the one hand, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And don't be put off by this phrase, work out your own salvation. He's not saying... Earn your salvation, merit your salvation by your works. It's more this idea of like, you've been given this great gift, now work out its ramifications. Unfold, unpack what does this mean for all its different aspects and areas of your life. Work it out. See? You do that. But then also, and at the same time, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is what sanctification is about. As God is the one who sanctifies you, even as his spirit is cooperating with you. And so we have a part to play in that. We do. All right, pushback or questions, comments about that? Go ahead, Bob. I think Luther said it the best in the second art in his, his explanation. He goes through this incredible statement about not with gold and silver. Yeah. But then he does this, that I might be his own, right. live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness and innocence. But he locates my life in the second art, yeah. which is profound. Yeah. So when we're saved, we are changed and transformed. Yes. We have a new heart that yearns for God. Yeah. And I think that's key to this. It's not like... We're trying to get somewhere. We're there, and sure. now we're living out what it means to be there. Yes. The other piece with sanctification is it's always a for others. It yep. is a setting aside as a priest. So I don't sit there and be holy on my own. No. I'm, I am set apart for those to serve my neighbor, to serve especially those who don't know him. That's exactly right. But it's coming from a new heart. Yeah. 
and I want to grow into the heart of Christ. Yes. I have it, but I want to grow into the fullness of his heart. That's right. Become more like him. That's my heart's desire. That's that's what's saying. It's our heart's desire. So it's not something we're fighting with. It's a, well, the old Adam. Insofar as we're still carrying that old sinful nature, there's there's a fight there. There is. There, but we we have a new heart, and are are we still sinners? Yes, but we're also saints, and we don't want to give that short shrift, right? We have we've been given a new heart. We've been recreated for good works, which He's prepared beforehand for us to walk into. So it's that both and where I, I love that point that Bob makes. And it's not just for our, for our own sake that isn't that cool? We're becoming more holy. It's for the sake of our neighbors. You're a city on a hill. You're light to the world. You're redeemed and rescued in order that then you might be able to go and declare his praises. And we'll get to that a little bit later too. Yeah, Esther. And it, to me, it's talking about free will. You know, we have a choice. Uh, before uh, salvation, justification, we didn't have a choice. Yeah, right. Sin and die. Yeah, sin and die, that was the choice. But now we have a choice, and, and it fits so well into ambassador training. Sure. Neighborhood ambassador, because we joined Jesus on his mission. That's now, right. And we, we can choose not to. Yeah. But, you know, that that's change that happens right we want to change. we want to even though the good that i would i do not the evil that i would. right there's that there's that battle oh, that doubleness <laughs> but um that's right now we okay yeah your kingdom's going to come even without me but i pray lord that i would be part of it i want to get in on it now sandy did you have your hand up? oh well i was just thinking about i this week i read the story of the uh, 10 lepers yeah mm -hmm. and is there maybe a parallel between um they were healed on the way. Oh, interesting. They were walking, I like that. And I was just thinking about that. So, yeah, Sandy raises the, the gospel story we heard today that the lepers, Jesus heals them, but he heals them on the way. And I think there's a way in which you could, spiritually speaking, look at that as a kind of, kind of a, a metaphor for sanctification. Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure that that was the intent, but I think no. there's a way you could look at it that way. Yeah. Good. All right. Oh, where, where was I even? Um, yeah, go on. I, I, this week, I, you know, I write a, a column on preaching regularly, and the one I wrote this week was on the importance of pausing, because when I was still just a seminarian, uh, and I was, you know, we would kind of practice preach. We would preach for real, but in our field work church, you're still just learning, figuring it out. And there was this kind man in the congregation in St. Louis, and one week after I preached, he came up to me afterwards and I could tell he had some constructive criticism to bring <laughs> and he, he said uh, you know Ryan I can tell that you've got some really good things to say now if only you could slow down enough that we could hear him <laughs> I know some of you are like he still hasn't learned his lesson <laughs> I'm working on it I'm working on it thanks Carla one of the deans this summer used the word W-A-I-T, wait, yes. Yes. why am I talking? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought of that a lot. Yeah. You mean when I'm up here speaking? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I need to wait. Yeah. Why yes. am I talking? Yes, why am I talking? It's, it's so true. And sometimes, deep breath, slow it down. I get excited. The problem. Yeah. I get excited. <laughs> All right. So, but... This, his holiness, it says we have one source. Back to Hebrews then. 
So we have this one source. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source from God. Um, and he has given to us then his holiness. He imparts it to us, consecrates us. Jesus prays this way in John 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus sets himself aside unto death for us, so that now, it says in 1 Peter 2, we are a holy priesthood. He's conferred on us and transmitted to us his holiness, so that now we might be bridges of it out into the world, in our neighborhoods. And not only that, Jesus goes so far as to call us brothers. Having become like us, this is number four there, Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers. This is interesting. I think it's a little bit different maybe from the way that we'll often talk or think. We'll more talk about how we're, we're sons and daughters of Jesus or something like that. That's not actually the, the scripture's normal way of speaking. We're sons and daughters of God the Father, but in fact, Jesus, as the Son of God, we are brothers and sisters of Jesus. He's our elder brother. And when you start to think that way, you notice it shows up over and over in the New Testament. To give a couple examples, Matthew 25, famous sheep and the goats. The king will answer them, the sheep, says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And likewise, Romans 8, passage I alluded to a moment ago, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is our elder brother. Now, I don't know, how does that strike you? Does that give any different nuance? Or is there a different way that you would look at him? Some of you have big brothers. You're like, I don't know how I feel about that, but yeah. Someone that's there to kind of guide you along your way. Sure. A big brother is somebody who's there to, to help guide you along the way. Yeah, good. Or lock yeah. you in the closet. Or lock you in the closet, as the case may be. <laughs> no, how, yeah, every, pair, every you know, metaphor breaks down somewhere. But yeah, Esther. Um, protector. A protector, right? The one who's, who's looking out for us. I think it, it also um, accentuates uh, the approachability of the Lord, that this is one, he's, he's for us. He's with us. Now, he's also the king of all creation. Look at Revelation 1 if you need a dose of like, Jesus in all of his awe-inspiring majesty as well. All right? This isn't just buddy Jesus. But I think that this um, notion of him as our brother does help to, to capture some of those, the, that more relational intimacy, right? of the closeness that we have with our Savior. He he's, went through it first. He went through it first, too. That's another, and that's a key point that is going to come out here. He went through it first. That's right. He had to suffer all of the, uh, the, the challenges for us in order that we might then have peace. And so now you get a cool thing here. As the preacher in Hebrews, we've already seen this, he loves quoting scripture, loves quoting from the Old Testament. But what's interesting, and this isn't the first time he's done this, in verses 12 and 13, he takes Old Testament scripture, and you notice he puts it in the mouth of Jesus. So to go back at the end of verse 11, that's why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, so he's telling us, this is Jesus ultimately speaking through scripture. And what we're going to see here is this number five on your handout. In the mouth of Jesus, Old Testament scripture traces the successive stages of salvation. 
What do I mean by that? Well, commentators point this out. Let me let me kind of walk you through this. Uh, we still we don't have our parabola. I draw out my diagram from last week. Remember, we had this image, this diagram of the parabola of salvation. Okay, so you might think of this as um, pre-incarnation, so to speak, he's the eternal Son of God. Then you have Christ in his ministry and in his suffering especially, and then you, here you have him um, on, the, on the throne, right? In his, in his exaltation. That's a throne with a crown on it. <laughs> you have kind of these three stages. Now notice how these three quotations map onto it. First, the first one you have is the son's intention, if you will, his kind of pre-incarnate um, declaration of here's, here's what I'm going to do in following the Father's will. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. This accents Jesus' ministry of preaching and teaching. Luke 4, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He comes to proclaim, I will do this, I will tell. But then you have at this second stage, so that's the first quotation. And by the way, that's from Psalm 22, which is significant in its own right. Psalm 22 is that profound psalm of David that starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the Lord's lips, on the cross. This is what he's going to do. I will tell of, uh, in the great congregation to my brothers. So then the second stage is Jesus now in his ministry, in his suffering, in his woes. You get the son's confession. Then one shall say, I will wait for God who has turned away his face from the house of Jacob, and I will trust in him. I will put my trust in him. Now, this is cool, guys. So um, the preacher of Hebrews is drawing from that Septuagint, that Greek Old Testament, which by and large traces the, the Hebrew pretty closely. But there's places where it's subtly different. Sometimes it'll insert a phrase perhaps reflecting what had come to be kind of the oral tradition of believers from the time that the scripture was first written until it was translated, which was around a, a century or so before the time of our Lord Jesus. Now, why is that significant here? Because that quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 8. And in that context, prophet Isaiah is speaking of how there's been all these unfaithful kings, the unfaithful kings that are not trusting in the Lord. And yet there is this promise in Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Right? It's a great promise that we hear uh, at Christmas time, Jesus as the Emmanuel. Now, to connect this up, in Isaiah 8, the next chapter, then one shall say, this is a, an addition in the Septuagint, that Greek Old Testament. It doesn't say who says this. One shall say, I will wait for God and I will trust in him. Now, connecting that with Hebrews, who's that one who will say, going back to Isaiah? It's Jesus. Emmanuel is the one who will say this. This is his profession of faith, his confident confession of trust in God the Father in the midst of his own suffering, in the midst of his woes, when he is stricken, smitten, and afflicted, still he proclaims his confidence in the Father. So that's that second stage, if you will. And then the third stage then, in his exaltation and glorification, having uh, risen from the dead and ascended and at the right hand of the Father, we have that third quotation, Behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Okay, then that's from the next verse in Isaiah 8. And it's Jesus' way of saying here, now, here are the ones that I have claimed through, through my ministrations. As he prays in John 17, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So you have just this kind of snapshot, this thumbnail sketch of our Lord's whole ministry in three quotations from the Old Testament. Pretty cool. All right, but that's, I laid a lot out there. Questions or clarifications about that? Yeah, Ian. So, um, is there anywhere else that in Scripture in the New Testament that kind of makes the jump to from, like, okay, so here's what we have heard in the Old Testament, and now we're seeing it fresh through the eyes or through the mouth mm -hmm. of, or through the lens yeah. it being about Jesus? Right. Um, and was it, do you, I just wonder, was that... It's just kind of taken for granted here in this in this book in yeah. this sermon. So is that is there somewhere else that that's happening? Or is that just kind of has there been a precedent set for that? Um, yeah. So great question. So Anne's question is, you know, here it really seems like the preacher of Hebrews is just he's riffing on on the Old Testament, and he's basically kind of takes it for granted that the. This is fulfilled in Jesus. This is our scripture. And that to read the Old Testament, which they still would have just called the scripture, you need to read it through the, that lens of Jesus. I think the first warrant and precedent for it goes back to the, the words of Jesus himself, right? So you think about, go to Luke 24, keep your finger in Hebrews, and go to Luke 24, which in a sense, uh, in one moment and, and just a handful of words, the Lord is going to... Um, basically give the, the whole warrant and basis for New Testament preaching. So um, Luke 24, this is after he's risen from the dead. There's that journey to Emmaus with the, the two disciples. And uh, they don't recognize him. They can't tell it's him. He's got the Groucho Marx glasses on. Oh, couldn't tell. No. They don't recognize in, in his glorified body. They, they don't realize that who he is. Um, and he says to them, let's see, um, where am I? Where am I going? Oh, verse 27. They, well, right before that, verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and so enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he'll underscore the point in verse 44. Speaking to his disciples, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Uh, there's also a similar line in John 5 and elsewhere. And so in a certain sense, this is what all the preaching of the New Testament is pointing to and showing how Jesus fulfills those Old Testament promises and prophecies. Hebrews does it in a more thoroughgoing and exhaustive way, more than any, anywhere else in the New Testament. But that's very much, it, it's coming from Jesus' own example and direction. Did you have a follow-up thought about that? Or is that, is that kind of what you're asking? Or? I just, are his hearers going to understand it that way? Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, so are, will the hearers understand? And this is, I mean, part of this is an inference. The book's called to the, to the Hebrews. And so the, the inference, the understanding is that this is like a Jewish Christian congregation, probably in Rome, that know their scriptures. And um, so, you know, as a preacher, you've got to know your people. And he knows his people. He knows what they understand. And he doesn't even have to tell. I mean, he doesn't have chapter and verse, right? That didn't happen until later. Um, but, uh, yeah, Bob? Well, the only scriptures they have are what we call the Old Testament. Right, that's right. And so in helping them reframe, because these guys are being led back into an interpretation of the Old Testament that's legalistic. Yes. I mean, that's what's, and so he's writing an apologetic, trying to reframe their orientation. Everything in the Old Testament points to the Messiah. Right. And only Jesus fits those criteria. That's right. So, so if you really want to read the Old Testament appropriately or properly, you need to read it to the lens of Jesus. Yes. And you see this in the book of Acts, where the sermons in the book of Acts are continually Peter and Paul, Mary also, to lesser, just kidding. Peter, Paul, and Mary. Anyway. <laughs> just making sure you're still with me there. Um, they, what they say is, what the prophets declared to the fathers, now I tell you, has been fulfilled. In your son Jesus. There's in God's son Jesus. So there's this movement of promise and fulfillment. Now, the one interesting um, uh, exception to this is in Acts 17, you have Paul preaching not to Jews, but preaching to the Gentile pagans in Athens. And there, he doesn't draw on the Old Testament and say, you know, here Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, because they would have been like, what's the Old Testament? I mean, they. They didn't have the Old Testament. But you know, it was, what's scripture? What, what does that have to do with us? And so, you may know, where does Paul appeal to? What does he quote from when he's preaching at Athens to the Gentiles? The unknown God. Well, he pre yeah, he, he, he quotes, he mentions, he reads their inscriptions, right, of their statues. And he quotes from pagan poets that had, not, from, not contemporaries necessarily, but he kind of goes to their pop culture, as it were. He alludes to and cites from the stuff that they would have been familiar with, showing how that too finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Right? You thought you were talking about Zeus, but let me tell you how that ultimately points to Jesus. It's pretty cool. All right. Other questions or, or thoughts about that? I can tell you guys are, are thinking hard. This is some <laughs> deep stuff. I, I'll tell you what, guys. I've taught on a lot of books of the Bible Hebrews, this is more challenging than just about any book, more so than Leviticus even, wow. because it's just so densely argued. There's so much there to disentangle and to, to draw out. Um, with just a couple of minutes here, rather than try to get into this next section, I'll, we'll start that afresh next week. I'll just kind of leave you with um, one, one big thought, I think, from, and take away from me from this passage, is the fact that the preacher of Hebrews is encouraging them and exhorting them that this is a ministry that Jesus is still doing in their midst. They are feeling beaten up. They are feeling worn out. They are feeling like, you know, this is not cool to be a Christian, right? Which, you know, nowadays we can't sympathize with, but if we could, you can imagine, right? Um, and the preacher is saying, listen, take heart because your big brother Jesus is still in your midst. He has made you part of God's royal family. And so when the world pushes back against you, when you feel like you don't have any place, know that your Lord Jesus went before you 
and still goes along beside you. To me, it's a great source of comfort and encouragement to know that I've got my big brother by my side. In closing, any, any final questions or comments about this passage? So much here. Well, the next week, we'll really dig into um, the second half of chapter two. Maybe we'll get into chapter three a little bit, but we'll see. Um, and really taking up this question of why did God become man? And we'll have some reasons for that. So uh, bring your hand out back next week, or you can leave it on the table as well. And we'll look forward to seeing you then. Thanks very much.